0: Well, today uh, we are in the uh, fifth installment of this series called Questions That Christians Don't Want to Answer. And if you're a guest of ours here or there in Somerset, or you're just watching online for the first time, uh, basically we've been talking about the fact that everybody believes what they believe for a reason. Uh, you have a reason for believing what you believe. I have a reason for believing what I believe. We all have a reason for believing what we believe. Uh, The problem is a lot of people just don't have a good reason for believing what they believe. And believing what you believe because someone told you so, your parents, your family, a church, once upon a time, you heard a sermon, a professor, you saw an online video, read an online article. Uh, You believed it because you wanted it to be true. You believed it because it, it made the most sense for you. Those are really not good reasons to believe. And we've talked about that the, best reason to believe is because something is rational and it makes the best sense of the evidence that you have. And we've talked about that week in and week out because it's important for you to own your belief, not borrow your belief. Uh, Borrowed belief eventually collapses under the weight of the difficulties of life and difficult questions. And so that's why we're talking about being ready to give an answer, an answer for people who ask us why we believe what we believe. When they ask us the reason, and hopefully it's a good reason why we believe what we believe. And so we've talked about different questions and if you haven't been here, you can go online, download the app. Uh, All of the discussion questions that you can deal with in your uh, group or maybe just talk about with some friends, they're all there, the notes are there and you can catch up on all the content or revisit the content online or on your mobile device. Today, however, uh, we're gonna start with a new question and this is a big question, this is an important question. Uh, When Peter, this verse that we've been talking about, week in and week out, when Peter says that we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, he's ultimately been talking about, be ready to give an answer for why you follow Jesus. Uh, why Jesus and not someone else? Why Jesus and not something else? Not everybody in the world follows Jesus. Why do you follow Jesus? And, And Peter's point ultimately that we've been discussing week in and week out is making sure that you have a good reason for why you follow Jesus. That's the most important question that everyone should be able to give an answer to. All the other questions are important, but that's the most important question. And the question we're going to talk about today is not that question. We're going to deal with that question on Easter in a big way. But today is an important question nonetheless that is connected to that question of why do you follow Jesus? Why Jesus and not something else? And why Jesus and not someone else? And so this question today that we're going to talk about for a little bit, it's important it's relevant, it's pressing, and, and it's a question that in some ways, have, it's always been around and it's a question in many ways I think will always be around. And so here, here's what we're gonna talk about today. Why should anyone take the Bible seriously? And let's just think about it for a moment that this may not be a question that you're asking and that you're wrestling with, but someone's asking it and someone's wrestling with it. And if you're a parent, it could be your children and you just not know it. And if you're a grandparent, it could be your, great, your grandchildren and you not know it. It could be someone in your family, it could be somebody you work with. But let's just imagine we're out for coffee and I pull up a seat, you know, over across the table from you. And as we sit there and talk, I finally just ask you, you know, why do you take the Bible seriously? Not everybody takes the Bible seriously, but why do you take the Bible seriously? You know, not everybody trusts what the Bible says, but, but why do you trust what the Bible says to be true? And what would you say to that? How would you respond to that? And just saying, I just do, uh, that doesn't work very well, or just because, or I was raised to think that way. But if someone really, they set you down in a sincere way and they wanted to know why do you take the Bible seriously? If your son or your daughter, they come home from their first semester, freshman year of college and and they're having dinner with you and they're like, hey, I I had this class and we were talking about these things. and, And mom, dad, if I can just ask you a question, why do you take the Bible seriously? Because I've got some people in my life that are telling me not to take the Bible seriously. Why do you take the Bible seriously? What are you going to say? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Do you have a good reason for why you take the Bible seriously? Do you have a good reason? I know you have a reason, but do you have a good reason? And this question brings front and center the most known book in all of the world, the most popular book in all the world, the most widely circulated book in all the world, the Bible. And here's one. I know some of you wondered whether I had one or not. Right here it is. I brought it, I brought it with me today just to prove to you I do have one, right? So, so here's a Bible, and, and, and people have lots of opinions about the Bible. Uh, folks talk a lot about the Bible, most of the time with a lot of emotion. Involved in that conversation But I want you to think about it Because I'm going to tell you the good and the bad and the ugly About the Bible Because there's a good side and there's a bad side And there's a part that we don't talk about in church And there's a part that people talk about outside of church That we know they talk about But we don't talk about inside the church And that's a problem in and of itself But I want you to think about this book What we call the Bible It is one of the most frustrating books If not the most frustrating book in all the world specifically for its lack of clarity. How many passages of scripture would we wish that God would have been more clear about or the Bible writers would have been more clear about? that the Bible says something and it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense and there's not a lot of data, there's not a lot of you know, other places that we can go to make sense of what it says and it's just frustrating. It's like, well, if we're not supposed to understand it and we obviously don't, if we don't understand it, then what was the point of putting it in there to begin with? And so it's a frustrating book because of its lack of clarity, but at the same time, now how does this work? At the same time, it is the most frustrating book perhaps because of its unapologetic clarity. Sometimes it is so clear it is unsettlingly, un, you know, un, un, uncomfortably clear, you know, inconveniently clear, that sometimes it's just in your face, finger to your nose, clear. And it's frustrating sometimes how the Bible is so clear and we wish it wouldn't be so clear. We, we wish it didn't say what it said and we wish it didn't mean what it appears to mean. And so this is, how can that be true of one book that, that we can be frustrated by its lack of clarity, but then we can be frustrated with its abundance of clarity. Inside this one one book, we read it, and and on one hand, it's heart heartwarming. It, 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 we like what we read; it makes us feel good. It, it it just brings good emotions. But on the other hand, it causes us to scratch our heads. It's heartwarming, but head scratching because we read something and we're like. I, I don't understand that. Why is that in there? Would God really have done that? Did God really say that? Why would God allow that? You know, or, or why would God permit that? Or why would God endorse that? it's like, I, I, just, can't, I just can't make sense of this uh, because this is just so confusing. How can that be true of one book? It warms our heart, but yet it stretches our mind to the point sometimes we, we just can't even understand what it's trying to say. Uh, on one hand, when it comes to the Bible, it's hated by some and loved by others. How does that work? The same book. How is it the same book is revered by some and is hated by others? And you can read throughout history, the Bible's been hated and you can read throughout history how the Bible's been loved and what was true in the past is true currently and it'll be true in the future. This is gonna be a book that's continued to be hated by some and loved by others. Now think about this. Some folks have taken this book, the book that we call the Bible and they have justified doing some of the greatest acts of good that the world has ever known. But there are people who have taken this book we call the Bible to justify some of the most heinous acts in all of history. How does that work? How can you take the same book and justify doing good and champion of justice on one hand while you take the same book and you commit atrocities and you carry out acts of injustice? How how does, how does that work? Some people in the past used this book to promote their views of slavery. They would cite chapter and verse about why they thought slavery was okay. Other people would come along and cite chapter and verse for why they opposed slavery. Some used the Bible to promote slavery, others came along and used the Bible to abolish slavery. How does that work? How do you take the same book and make it work in both directions? Some folks say that this book liberates all people, some folks say that this book is responsible for the discrimination of many different people. A lot of folks have read this book and they've come together. It brought unity. Some folks read this book and it tore them apart. Some folks, when they talk about the Bible, they say, hey, just open up the Bible because it is a book of answers. You have a question, great. Open the Bible because it's a book of answers. Yet, many people opened the Bible and read it, but at the end of reading it, they found there were more questions than what the Bible offered as answers. How is that true? How can it be a book of answers and how can it be a book that creates more questions than answers all at the same time? If we're true in our heart of hearts and if we're honest with ourselves and honest with each other, we would say that when it comes to this book, that there's parts of this book which inspires us, there's parts of this book which confuses us, And there's parts of this book at times that may anger us or bother us. And even perhaps there's parts of this book which embarrass us from time to time. And it's hard to understand how all that can be true about one particular book. Now think about this for a moment. Some people read this book and find a reason to believe. Other people read this book and find a reason not to believe. Now how does that work? Let me tell you something even more horrifying and unsettling than that. There are people who believe this book, though having never read it. Now, how does that work? Do you believe the Bible? I believe the Bible. Have you ever read it? No. But you believe the Bible? Oh, yeah, I believe the Bible wholeheartedly. Really? Equally troubling are the number of people who have chosen to not believe having not read it. How does that work? How can people read it and believe and then read it and not believe? And how can people believe it and not read it and disbelieve and have never read it? How how does all of that work? Once upon a time, we would all hear that this book is one big cohesive book. It tells one story. So when some people talk about the Bible, they talk about this book that is absolutely cohesive. But yet, when some people read this book and talk about it, they talk about all the contradictions and how it says one thing over here, something different over there. And one person recorded it this way and another person recorded it that way. And these two things don't seem to match. And someone said it was in that city and another person said that city and the math didn't add up here. And how can one person say cohesion and the other person say contradiction? How does that work? This is a book that has pitted at times believers against other believers, and at times believers against unbelievers, even though it seemed to be a book about love and forgiveness and community, but yet there have been wars launched in the name of the Bible. There have been persecutions launched in the name of the Bible. There's been the eradication of certain groups of people based on the Bible. I mean, like, how, how does all of that fit together? How is it that people who are intelligent And people who have faith can read the same text but come up with different conclusions about what that text meant. How is it that the inspiration of the text, how how does that match up with the interpretation of the text? Because I think sometimes people get confused the inspiration of the text and the interpretation of the text and though the text may be inspired, the interpretations of the text certainly are not inspired. So we got people reading the same book saying, oh, well, it means this and someone else says, no, it means that. It's very troubling. It's the same book. Once upon a time, they tell us at least in this country, the storyline is that once upon a time in this country, people had a prevailing respect for the scriptures, the Bible. I'm not sure if that's really true or not, but but if we go with that storyline, once upon a time, people just had a general respect for the scripture. I think we can say that that's no longer the case. Once upon a time, men like me could get up and you know, the more conservative you were and the better preacher you were, the more oak you had in your pulpit, right? Because you needed a strong pulpit because you need to like slam the Bible and you need to say, hey, you need to believe this. And the reason you need to believe it is because the Bible says it and that settles it. And people would just sit in the congregation and go, huh, okay. The Bible says it, that settles it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to read about it. My intelligence can just be pushed pause. It can just go on pause. Just, it settles it. Well, that's no longer the case because now you Google me before I'm even through preaching to find out if I'm actually telling you the truth or not. 15 year olds, 14 year olds, they're Googling these stories that I'm telling you to see if they're actually true or not. And by the end of the sermon, it's really easy for you to know if I'm blowing smoke or if I actually know what I'm talking about. Because we live in a different world. Once upon a time, we could go all of our lives. Many of us could go all of our lives without meeting anyone else or reading anything else that contradicted what we had been told about the Bible. Now, think about that. You could go all your life and not meet anyone or read anything that contradicted anything you'd ever been told about the Bible. We do not live in that day any longer. The Bible is a complicated book many, many times. And it is a controversial book most all of the time. And we live in a culture that's not going to accept little answers like, Because the Bible says or the Bible says so and that settles it. Our culture is not at a place where we just take those answers anymore. And here's here's the truth, I don't know if we ever did. And if you're a Jesus follower, you probably wouldn't respond well if someone walked up to you at a restaurant, at the mall, at the grocery, and they said, you know what? What you believe is wrong and what you should believe is this. And then you say, well, why should I believe that? And they would look at you and say, because the Quran says so. You're like, that's not my book. I don't, that's not, I don't believe that. The way you would respond to, you should believe that because the Quran says so, is the way that many in our culture respond when we say the Bible says so. They don't believe it, they don't accept it, they don't see its authority, they don't see its inherent value. So you have to go deeper than just the Bible says or the Bible says so and that settles it because we live in a different world today. The Barna Group who wrote about this in a recent study on the Bible, they said this, they said the steady rise of skepticism is creating a cultural atmosphere that is becoming unfriendly, sometimes even hostile to claims of faith. In a society that venerates science and rationalism, it is an increasingly hard pill to swallow than an eclectic assortment of ancient stories, poems, sermons, prophecies, and letters written and compiled over the course of 3,000 years is somehow the sacred word of God, and they go on. With each passing year, the percent of Americans who believe that the Bible is just another book written by men increases so too does the perception that the Bible is actually harmful and that people who live by its principles are religious extremists. And I've told you this before, the younger the generation is in this country, the more so they believe that, specifically among millennials and Generation Z. The younger you get in this country, the more hostile ideas they have towards the scriptures and the more negative views they have about people who adhere to scripture. So this is a new day. And the Barna Groups goes, goes on to say that this new landscape is really characterized by three things. Increasing skepticism. People want to know about the origin and the relevance and the authority of Scripture. People want to know, how did we get the Bible? Where did it come from? Who got to pick what made it and what didn't? How did that work? And is it relevant? And, and is there any authority? Should, should I care what the Bible says? People are asking these questions. Sons and daughters, grandkids, cousins, coworkers, people are asking. They may not be asking you out loud, but they're asking and they're wrestling with this internally. The second thing is that there's this new moral code that exists in our world. Now there is a transference of authority. Once upon a time throughout history, authority was something from without. There was civic authority, governmental authority, and you know, the authority of God. And now all of a sudden, that authority is being transferred from without to within and self me. I am the arbitrator i am the determiner of what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong now we have a full-fledged rejection of authority in our world we don't want authority from without we want only the authority from within i want to be able to determine what is right for me what is wrong for me what is best for me and whatever fulfills me that's what i'm gonna go with what I want to be true is what is true. What I don't want to be true is not true. And that's kind of where we are. There's a whole new moral code being written. And a lot of it has to do with digital access. Now people, now people can find questions that undermine their faith easier than ever before. They can find lectures online, YouTube, they can hear about the fossil record, they can hear about the evidence against the global flood, all these things that Christians say they believe in, there's all these questions and all this evidence and all these you know, folks who just say, are you crazy for believing such things? And, and this stuff is so accessible that anybody can find it and we just live in a different day and, and people now have to face questions and thoughts that, that many times they could go most of their life and never have to deal with. And This is where we are. So again, I ask the question, why should anyone take the Bible seriously? Why do you take the Bible seriously? Now, for the risk of being too elementary and being, you know, too, you know, first day of class and here's your syllabus and 101 type of thing, when we talk about the Bible, and you may need to answer that, it could be Jesus. And and so here's the thing. If it is, tell him hey. And, and, and so here, here's the thing. When we talk about the Bible, when we talk about the Bible, just so that we know what we're all talking about. When I'm talking about the Bible, I'm talking about this right there. That, that's, that's the Bible, 66 books. Old Testament, you know, the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, the biographies, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the books of Acts through the book of the Revelation. So, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, right? And so when I'm talking about the Bible, I'm talking about these books. Now, what you may not understand and may have been misled about is that the Bible is not a book. It is not. Matter of fact, the word Bible itself is from a Latin word which means books plural. But we were told when we think about the Bible to think about this as one book. This is just one big book. It is not just one big book. It is specifically 66 different books that once upon a time, because they were already circulating, that someone for sake of convenience and for sake of reading and for sake of information expansion, that they took those 66 individual components and made one volume of it. Now, why is this important? And you may not care about this, but you should care about it, all right? So here's the deal. Before the Bible ever existed, before the Bible ever existed, every single one of these ancient documents existed. Every single one of these books existed before the Bible existed. All of these books came before the Bible. And because of their importance, because of what they said, they were bound together into one volume that we call the Bible. So the Bible is a collection of books, a collection of documents. And the reason that it's important is a lot of people think that the Bible, somebody just sat down at one time and penned the Bible. That's just crazy. No, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. That's the reason why some folks have a hard time understanding what the Bible means. I mean, even scholars, because there's so many different authors and perspectives and points of views and different genres of literature and, and 40 different authors who wrote those in 13 different countries over the period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. And there's the Bible, right? And so no wonder we we struggle about interpretation of the text. It's not so much that we struggle about the inspiration of the text. What turns most people off to faith, to Jesus, to God, the Bible, has been interpretations of the inspired text. Remember, there is an infallible text and there is a very much fallible interpretation of infallible text. And so you have all of these books which were bound together to make one book. So why do you take the Bible serious? And I think this is the place to start, at least for me. The starting point of any discussion about the scripture should always be Jesus. The starting point of talking about the scriptures should always be Jesus, right? If you take Jesus seriously, now here's what I wanna say. If you're not a Jesus follower, we're glad you're here. That's the reason we built this place. If you're not a Jesus follower, here's what I assume. I assume you don't take the Bible seriously. Why would you? If you don't take Jesus seriously, why would you take the Bible seriously? But If you are a Jesus follower and you take Jesus seriously, then I imagine that you desire to take seriously everything that Jesus took seriously. Because we believe that Jesus is the savior of the world. We believe that he's the hope of the world. We believe that Jesus showed up into history, that he died for the sins of the world, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. And because of that belief in Jesus, Christians should want to take seriously everything that Jesus took seriously. Are you with me? Say, I am. am. Because if we take him seriously, we should want to take everything that he took seriously, seriously. We should want to know what Jesus thought about the scripture. We should want to know how Jesus felt about the scripture. And just so that you know, and just so we're clear, the Bible in Jesus's day was the Old Testament. The New Testament had not been written yet. The only scriptures that existed in Jesus's day were the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. So when Jesus talked about the scriptures, when Jesus talked about the word of God, he was talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And here's what you need to know. As clear as can be, Jesus took the Old Testament very seriously. And if you don't believe me, then read the New Testament. Read specifically the Gospels and read what Jesus said about the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus took very seriously the Old Testament Scriptures. We'll talk more about it in just a moment, but Jesus believed the Old Testament Scriptures were the Word of God. He believed they were inspired, he believed that they were eternal. Jesus said, I've not come to fulfill the Old Testament, or not come to abolish the Old Testament, but I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. And even though he came to start a brand new covenant and the old covenant was being done completely away with, Jesus did did not discard the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he was gonna help the world see the Old Testament the way that God had always intended the Old Testament to be seen. But more on that in just a moment. Jesus took the Old Testament seriously and consequently his very first followers, the apostles took the Old Testament very seriously. Now Peter, That we've been talking about week in and week out throughout this series. Peter who said, be ready to give an answer for anybody who may ask you for the hope that lies within you. After he wrote that first letter, he would write a second letter. And in that second letter, he would take some of his own advice. And he's going to tell Jesus' followers that are listening to his letter why he has trusted Jesus. Why he takes Jesus seriously. And in telling them why he takes Jesus seriously, he is able to frame his answer to why he takes the scriptures seriously, because any discussion about the scripture has to begin with Jesus. So this is what Peter said in his second letter. He said, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. In other words, know why you believe what you believe and know why it is that you think you have the faith that you think you have. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Your your faith will not collapse under the weight of the difficulties of life or difficult questions. He says, so, I will always remind you of these things because faith is just not spiritual, it's just not ethereal. I mean, there's an intellectual component, there's a thinking component. He says, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. He says, I've told you about Jesus, I've told you about what he said, I've told you about his death, his burial, resurrection, I've told you about all these things. You know about it, but I'm gonna remind you about it. And he even goes on to say it again. He says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. In other other words, as long as I'm alive, I'm gonna keep telling you what I've been telling you. And then I'm gonna tell you again and retell you and tell you again and retell you. He says, because, why Peter? Why are you gonna keep doing this? Because I know that I will soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. In other words, I'm gonna die sooner or later. Probably under the hands of Nero, I'm gonna die. I'm not always gonna be here. And I want you to know what I saw. I want you to know what I heard. I want you to know what I experienced. I want you to know what I touched with my hands. I want you to know what I know. I want you to hear what I heard and I want you to see what I saw. So I need to let you know this over and over and over again because I'm not always going to be here to tell you about it. He says, and, I, and this may be one of the most One of the most profound passages of scripture in the New Testament, maybe the most profound thing, one of the most profound things that Peter, that he wrote and listen to what he says. He says, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now we could read right on past that and not think anything about it, but what is Peter talking about I want to make sure you are able to remember these things. Well, Peter, how are you going to make sure that people are able to remember what you saw, what you heard, what you experienced? And most New Testament scholars believe that in this moment, Peter is talking about his gospel concerning Jesus's life. Peter's biography of Jesus's life, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his burial, his resurrection, say, well, hold on, time out. I don't ever remember the gospel according to Peter. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, there's John. Exactly. Most scholars believe that the gospel of Peter is what we refer to as the gospel of Mark. That Peter allowed Mark to record his account. That Mark used Peter as his source for Jesus's life, his teaching, the miracles, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So when Mark writes his account in the New Testament, he is actually writing it based on the information that he got from Peter. So Peter in this moment appears To understand that he is going to provide that generation of believers and perhaps subsequent generation of believers with eyewitness testimony because Peter knew that sooner or later all the eyewitnesses were gonna be gone and few things are more powerful than eyewitness testimony Peter is not telling them what somebody else told him he is telling them what he saw and what he heard and what he experienced and he knew that sooner or later all the eyewitnesses were gonna be dead So what does the eyewitness need to do? He needs to write down this testimony. And he says, I'm making sure that this is going to be recorded for you, copied and recopied, copied, so that the world will know what I saw, what I heard, what I experienced. And then he goes on. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we were told about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, we didn't follow myths. We didn't follow a fable. I'm not telling you what somebody else told me. I'm telling you what I experienced, what I saw, what I heard. Now, isn't it amazing what people have time to study in the world, and and I'm glad that they have time to study these things, but sociologists have determined that it takes between 70 and 90 years to develop a myth. A myth develops after about 70 to 90 years after all the original people of the story are dead. When all the original people of the story are dead, then people can just add on hyperbole. People can add on things that weren't true, things that didn't happen, things that people didn't say, and there's nobody there to correct it. Peter says, listen, I'm writing this about 35 or 40 years after the resurrection. that's, That's how long it's been since Jesus had been raised from the dead when Peter wrote this letter, 35 or 40 years. Now, 35 or 40 years is only a long time if you're 35 or 40 years old. But if you're older than 35 or 40 years, it doesn't seem that... Long, And so here he is, he's writing about this. He's not repeating this. He saw this stuff. This, This is firsthand information from Peter's experience. This is what he saw. So he's talking about something that happened 35 or 40 years ago. And somebody says, well, 35, 40 years, that's a long time. Peter would have never forgotten these things. Some of you, there are things that have happened to you in your life that you'll never be able to forget because of how horrible it was or because of how great it was. You can remember what it smelled like. You remember the weather. You can remember what you were wearing. You can remember what other people said. You, can, you just can remember it. And Peter was on the front row to Jesus's life and ministry, his death, his burial, resurrection. He would have never forgotten that. In 35 or 40 years, I mean, information, I, it, it, let's do a little experiment. Don't leave me hanging because I'll look like a fool if you do, okay? All right, here we go. Bye, bye, Miss American. So that's about 40 years ago. About 40 years ago. Welcome to the hotel. See? Y'all didn't, we all were raised Baptist, obviously, because Baptist didn't listen to that music. But that was, was, you know, 40 or so years ago. I mean, information is transmitted, and and this, this is something far bigger than a hit song. I mean, he's talking about this stuff and he remembered it like it was yesterday. And so then he tells about one particular event on one particular day when he was with Jesus. He said, on that day, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. I'll tell you what this means in just a moment. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And Peter's talking about one particular event where Peter, James, and John were taken by Jesus up on the mountain that church people call the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's, it's a deep story and we don't understand, you know, the full ramifications of everything or the why behind everything up there. But basically Jesus took them up on the mountain and it was just them. And all of a sudden Jesus' glory was revealed to them. The glory that he had had with God from the very foundations of the world and they were just sitting there and they saw the glory of God. And, you know, Peter, James, and John, I can imagine Peter's looking at the other guys saying, Can you believe this? Oh, my gosh. Look at that. And they're like, You can't say, Oh, my gosh. You know, like, and it's like, Jesus. And so they're there on the mountain. And then all of a sudden, you know, to make things even better, you know, we're told that Elijah and Moses show up there on top of the mountain. They're talking to Jesus. It's like two of the greatest Jewish heroes. And the guys are just like, Somebody write this down. I don't have to write this down. I'm never gonna forget this day. And then all of a sudden, they heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. (laughs) And Peter says, I was there. I was there through it all, but I was there that day. And now you know about it because I was there and I'm telling you about it. And then he tells them that story to make this point. He said, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. He says, everything I've told you about what I saw and experienced, heard and saw in Jesus' life, now you know. And you can trust it because I was there. You can trust my eyewitness testimony. But he says, we also have something else that's completely reliable. Matter of fact, in the Greek New Testament, it actually says more reliable. Now this this takes us now from beyond why he followed Jesus. He followed Jesus because he was there that day that the glory was revealed and he was there when Jesus died. He was there when Jesus was buried. He was there when Jesus was raised from the dead. But now he's talking about why he takes the Bible seriously. He says, we have a more reliable record than just my eyewitness testimony. And what he's talking about is the Old Testament scriptures. Peter elevates the Old Testament scriptures as something completely reliable. And matter of fact, you you can just check it out. Peter is actually saying that you can trust the Old Testament prophetic record more than you can trust my eyewitness testimony. That's how high of a trust that he had in the Old Testament scriptures because now the Old Testament is so much more important to him because of how the Old Testament is being interpreted and being regarded in light of Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection. They saw the Old Testament completely different now because now it's just not the story that they've been told all of their lives. Now, this is a book that points to Jesus. Matter of fact, on the first day of the church, the first Christian sermon in the New Testament, this is what Peter preached. This is what he said in the book of Acts. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the talk to me. That's Old Testament saying that this Messiah would suffer. Now, this is interesting. New covenant followers of Jesus in the days of the New Testament with the New Testament church and the first New Testament Christian sermon Peter points people to the Old Testament scriptures because now they understand that the Old Testament scriptures ultimate point was to point people to Jesus. So here's the Old Testament. There it is. Genesis through Malachi written 1400 BC to 400 BC. Now all of a sudden they see it differently. Now it's just not the story of the Jewish people with Abraham, but now it's about the promise that God made to Abraham that one day the Messiah would be born and would come through his son Isaac and through Isaac's son Jacob and God promised Jacob that it would come out of his son Judah and out of the tribe of Judah would the Messiah come within a family within the tribe of Judah called the line of Jesse. And in the line of Jesse, out of the household of David, the Messiah would be born. And that the Messiah, the prophet said, would be born in Bethlehem and would be born of a virgin. And that the prophets promised that the Messiah, that his ministry would begin in Galilee, that his ministry would be characterized by miracles, This was incredible. They predicted that one day the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that he would be wrongfully accused, silent before his accusers, that he would be spat upon, that he would be wounded and bruised, beaten beyond recognition, that his hands would receive nails, his feet would be nailed before crucifixion was ever invented. It was predicted in the Old Testament that he would die, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb and on the third day that he would rise from the dead. (laughs) So no wonder these New Testament, New Covenant believers, the first thing that they knew to do was to point their audience back to the Old Testament to say the Old Testament was all about Jesus to begin with. It wasn't about all the minutia of thou shalt this and thou shalt not and all of that and that makes for good discussion and that's another series for another day. But the ultimate point was to point people to Jesus. And and this is why it's significant. The message of the prophets became the message of the apostles. Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. So did his first followers. And then came Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus. And these were written prior to AD 70. And this is why this is important. And this is where we're gonna end things today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written prior to AD 70. Jesus was crucified somewhere around 30 or 32 AD. So within 30 or 40 years of Jesus' death, the gospels were written. Not like many people have told other people like, oh, they were written hundred years or 200 years or 300 years after Jesus. And all this stuff was added to it that just wasn't true. No, they were written before AD 70. And say, why do you say that? Because of what happened August of eighty seventy, 70, and because of a prediction, perhaps the most clear prediction that Jesus ever made in his life, that's recorded in three of the four gospels that Mark recorded, Matthew recorded, Luke recorded. And this is what Mark says about it. Jesus was leaving the temple and one of his disciples said to him, look teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. So they're looking at the temple over there, the Jewish temple and says, do you see all these great buildings replied Jesus? And then he said something that probably took their breath away. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And that seems so impossible for this magnificent temple to be torn down. And then Jesus goes on to talk about what would be one of the worst days of future history. And he says, woe to those who are nursing children in those days. There will be people who want to die but can't in those days. And he talks about the violence and he talks about the death that's going to come when the event of this temple being destroyed would happen. And they all just thought maybe he was talking symbolic or metaphor, they didn't really understand what he was saying. But that's exactly what happened on August 7th, AD 70. And what is called in history, the first Jewish war there was a group of Jewish rebels all throughout Palestine that began to rebel against Jewish soldiers or Roman soldiers and Roman, or Roman people. And so they would attack them and then they would attack another pocket and they were, they were just kind of quick in and quick out. And they were causing a major disruption. So much so that Rome had to intervene and Rome sent one of their best generals, Vespasian, along with a legion of troops to go take care of the matter. So Vespasian started up in Galilee and moved around the Transjordan area and he chased the rebels to Jerusalem. The rebels stormed Jerusalem, actually overtook some of the Roman soldiers and confiscated their warehouse of weaponry. And then they sealed the city walls shut with all the Jewish people and Jewish rebels on the inside. Vespasian shows up and camps outside the city walls and they can't climb over and they can't tunnel under. And things are just at a stalemate. Then Vespasian is called back to Rome because he's gonna be made Roman emperor. He leaves his son Titus in charge. So Titus now the general begins to dig great ravines, great ditches around the city walls to cut off the city food supply. They build forts and they build scaffolding. On one particular day, the Romans crucified 500 Jewish people on those scaffolds so that the people inside the city could see and be afraid of what was to come. So inside the city, the food supply was shortening and shortening and lessening and lessening and people turned to cannibalism and it was just a horrible time in Jewish history. And then August of AD 70, Titus and the Roman legions, they pierced through the walls of the city and they pillaged and they killed basically everything and anything and they set the temple on fire They stole the artifacts from the temple and then they destroyed the temple. I've been there, I went there last year. And you can go to the temple mount where the Jewish temple used to be and the stones from that temple are still on the ground. And just like Jesus said, one stone was not left upon another. It was completely decimated. It was horrible. Matter of fact, Josephus, a historian, not a Jesus follower, he was there. And this is what he said about it. He said, the slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of the slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionaries had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. It was one of the, if not the worst day in Jewish history. People were dead. Perhaps 300,000 to a million people were dead. And worst of all, the temple was destroyed. And ancient Judaism died on that day. And it has never been resurrected since. And the temple has yet to be rebuilt. It was destroyed by Titus and his soldiers, A.D. 70. And you know where you read about that in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You don't because they wrote it before it happened. If they had written the gospels after AD 70, after the whole rebellion, after the temple had been destroyed, do you know what the writers would have done? They would have said, remember that day that Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. It really happened. But they never said that. They never tried to leverage that as a point of credibility for Jesus because they wrote the gospels before 8070. They didn't write it hundred years or 200 years or 300 years after the fact, they wrote it within generation 1.0. And so it goes with Paul and Peter and James work were written prior to 8070. You don't find this event as big of an event as what it was, you find it not in those writings. So there you have it, the scriptures, beginning in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John through Revelation. All the books of the New Testament, just in case you wanna know, were all finished prior to 95 AD. And here's what you need to know. We don't believe the New Testament is reliable because it's in the Bible. We believe it's in the Bible because it was considered reliable by the earliest Christians. They wrote about it early on. Those documents were copied and recopied and copied and recopied and copied and recopied. It circulated among the churches, written by people who were eyewitnesses or who interviewed the eyewitnesses of who were there. And all of a sudden, Jesus followers, beginning with the very first Christians, saw those documented accounts, those eyewitness accounts as credible and trustworthy. And the reason that they're in our Bibles today is because the earliest Christians, those who would have known whether it was true or not, Considered them trustworthy and reliable. And so Peter wraps it up and says, we also have the prophetic message, something completely reliable. You would do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. They just didn't make this up. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, and then just talk to me right here, spoke what? From God, God. as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that is what Jesus believed about the Old Testament, that it was from God. He called it the Word of God. He believed it was eternal, that it was unchanging. He believed the Old Testament testified and pointed to him, and he believed that it was truth, And that truth led to freedom. And not only did Jesus trust the Old Testament, but his first followers trusted in the Old Testament. They believed it was from God. So the question we wrestle with is, is that true? Do we believe that there's a reason to believe that it's from God? And if we believe that's true, we would do well to read it. We would do well to think about it and we would do well to trust and obey it. If Jesus took seriously the Old Testament and I take Jesus seriously, how can I not take the Old Testament seriously? Because when you trust Jesus, you trust the scriptures that Jesus trusted and the scriptures that he inspired. He trusted in the Old Testament scriptures and he told his followers to go and to tell the world what they had seen and heard. He knew they were gonna write it down. And he commissioned them to write what we call the New Testament. And if Jesus trusted the Old Testament and he inspired the New Testament, how can I not take those seriously? You see, when you trust Jesus, you can trust the scriptures that Jesus trusted. Go ahead and throw that one up there. When you trust Jesus, you can trust the scriptures that Jesus trusted. We trust the Old Testament because Jesus trusted the Old Testament. We trust the New Testament because of who wrote them and when they wrote them. There were eyewitnesses writing within a short period of time after the events happened. But any discussion about the scriptures has to begin with Jesus because the scriptures, both old and new, point to one person and that's Jesus. Father, I pray you just speak to us, whatever we need to hear, let us hear what we don't need to hear. Let us, let us just not hear it at this moment. God, whatever we need to reconcile in our heart and mind today, I pray that we'll reconcile it. I pray that you'll just let the chips fall where they need to fall. And Father, that you would just allow your word to be living and breathing in what we have heard and what we experienced today. And Father, I pray that we, because we take Jesus seriously, We'll take the scriptures that he took serious, very seriously ourselves. And thank you that because we believe that you came, that you died and was buried and raised from the dead, what you think matters most. What you believe, I wanna believe. What you trusted in, I wanna trust in. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's all stand together. We're gonna sing one last song. And this song's gonna remind us of why we believe what we believe as Jesus followers, that we believe what we believe because of Jesus, that we don't trust Jesus because we first trusted the Bible, but we trust the Bible because we first trusted Jesus. And it tells us about a God who created us, loved us, pursued us, sent his son to die for us, raised that son from the dead so that we could be forgiven and points us to a better eternal life. And we believe it all because of Jesus. Let's sing this.